You may recall that I believe that the structure of Revelation is such that there are a cycle or a series of visions, uh, each one taking us, as it were, from the first to the second coming of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ, speaking of events not simply that will happen at the return of Christ, but things that will happen uh, between the two comings of Christ, that is, in the gospel age in which we now live. Uh, This current series of visions occurs from Revelation chapter 8 down through Revelation chapter 11. So next week, Lord willing, when we consider the seventh trumpet, uh, those will be things uh, that have to do with the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the passage today uh, concerns, along with chapter 10, uh, what the church of Jesus Christ is doing Uh, In this period of time when the various uh, trumpet blasts are sounding, warnings to the world of uh, the coming judgment of God. Uh, The passage that we read today is uh, an important passage full of uh, wonderful truth uh, for us. So let's now read Revelation chapter 11. Our text will be verses 1 through 13. There John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And this ends, this reading, uh, in God's uh, holy word. Let's now uh, look once again to the Lord uh, in prayer. Lord, our uh, God and heavenly Father, we 
receive uh, this chapter out of the book of Revelation as your holy, inspired, inerrant, fully authoritative word, that word which is sufficient to build us up in a life of godliness and to show us more of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we plead with you now this hour, O Lord our God, would you cause light to shine from your holy word? Would you allow us to understand uh, this passage correctly? Lord, grant that we would be quick to apply it to our lives. Where sin needs to be repented of, Lord, grant to us the gift of repentance. Where our faith needs to be strengthened, oh, strengthen it, O Lord. O gracious God, where you show us the path of duty and a life of godliness, Lord, grant that we would walk in that way. Lord, our God, we desire to receive this not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the very word of God. Oh, bless us now this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, before he uh, went up into heaven, uh, the Lord Jesus gave his final words to his church. And he said this as the ascended Lord Jesus And you shall be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That our Lord's words, his charge to his church in this age between the two comings of Jesus Christ is that you and I should be witnesses who testify to the truth about Jesus Christ. This is one of our chief tasks as individual Christians. It is a, certainly one of our chief tasks as the corporate body of Christ that we would be those in the midst of this world who are telling others about the Lord Jesus. For how is it that this world should ever hear about Jesus Christ unless the church tell them? How will needy and perishing sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ unless we tell them of this Savior of sinners? Who else is there to testify that God's word, in the midst of lies, that God's word is truth and it forever shall stand? You see, the church is called to be God's witnessing people in this world. And this is really what this chapter of the book of Revelation is all about. One writer has said about Revelation chapter 11 uh, that every commentator I know says that this is the most difficult text to interpret. It is densely packed and subtle. And perhaps you thought that as we read through this chapter. This is a difficult chapter to understand all the details here of what this is describing. And yet, I believe that when we do work our way through this passage and seek to understand it rightly, it contains, indeed, powerful challenges and assurances for the Christian believer. Uh, The central idea of this whole passage is found there in verse uh, 3, when he says that I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. It is these two witnesses 
that are uh, the primary subject of this passage of Scripture uh, today. Well, what, are, what, what do these two witnesses refer to? What's well, a symbolic number? Uh, perhaps, uh, by way of symbolism, it's referring to Moses and Elijah representing the witness of the law and the prophets. Perhaps the number two is mentioned because it's a kind of reference to the biblical requirement that on the testimony of two or more witnesses, a truth is established. Uh, perhaps it's a reference to the fact that when Jesus uh, sent out his disciples on their missionary journeys. He sent them out two by two. We don't know for sure why that number two is chosen here, but the number is symbolic, and it stands here for the church as a whole. It stands for the great task that the church is engaged in between the first and the second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the church of Jesus Christ to be about? In the midst of this world, we are called to be those who are witnesses testifying to the living God. The church is to be a witnessing church. Uh, That's the theme of this section of Revelation. So we're going to open up this theme now under four different headings. Uh, First of all, we are going to see the witnessing church protected in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, the witnessing church empowered in verses 3 through 6. Then the witnessing church embattled in verses 7 through 10. And finally, the witnessing church in triumph in verses 11 through 13. The witnessing church protected, empowered, embattled, and in triumph. Well, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, I want us to see here the witnessing church uh, protected. You know, sometimes when we seek to bear witness for Jesus Christ in this world, it sometimes feels a bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? When we seek to talk about our Savior uh, to a world that doesn't believe in Him, at times we can feel vulnerable and insecure. What does uh, this other person think about me that I would believe in these things? Am I a crazy person? We ask ourselves those kinds of questions. But in reality, what the Bible says is that as we witness for Jesus Christ, that we are absolutely secure in the grip of Almighty God. And it's essential that we are convinced of that. And we know that we belong to him, and he has us secure in his grasp. And that's what we're told, actually, in verses 1 and 2. The imagery of these verses is that of uh, John being given a rod to measure the temple. So John here is is told, uh, take this rod and measure the temple, just like a surveyor that would determine the precise boundaries of a property. Well, what is this temple that John is supposed to measure? Well, some, uh, namely uh, dispensationalists, interpret this literally. They think that this is referring to the final days in which a literal temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, 
And it is there at that rebuilt temple that the true worship of God will be offered. But we simply want to say that possibly cannot be the case. Isn't the argument of the entire book of Hebrews that temple worship was necessary for a time to prefigure Christ's work, but now that Christ has come, we dare not return to temple worship. Christ fulfills all temple worship. His once-for-all sacrifice renders all further animal sacrifice unnecessary. We dare not return to the shadows once Christ the substance has appeared. And so this passage isn't describing for us a literal reconstruction of the temple during the end times. But rather it is teaching a truth that is far more profound than that. Here the temple is symbolizing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the same symbolism that we find uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament. Actually, time and time again, uh, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16, for we, describing the church, are the temple of the living God. Or 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, you Christians yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 19 and 21, where it describes the church as being built upon Christ. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so the church is the temple. When it refers to the altar here, it's referring to those who are washed by Christ's blood. The worshipers described here are those who offer acceptable worship to God through Christ uh, by the Spirit. And so it is this, the church, that he is told to measure. But why is he told to measure the temple? Well, that imagery of measurement simply means that God knows his church. To measure something is to know its dimensions. It's to know its size. And it means here that God knows his church, that each and every person is counted. And being counted by the Lord means to be uh, known by him and provided for and protected. Actually, Zechariah chapter 2 uses this exact same imagery. In Zechariah 2, uh, uh, the prophet is called to measure Jerusalem with a rod. And as he measures Jerusalem, then the Lord says to, her, to, says to him, I will be to her, that is to Jerusalem, a wall of fire all around, and I will be the glory in her midst. And that's the idea here. The Lord is saying, uh, I have committed myself to the church. Nothing and no one shall touch my church apart from my 
loving hand. It's the same truth, essentially, that was found back in Revelation chapter 7. Do you remember in Revelation 7, just prior to that vision of uh, the heavenly worship, we were told that God's saints were sealed. It's the idea of being protected, cared for, kept safe in the midst of this world. And that's the idea here. Just before the revelation of this seventh trumpet and the return of the Lord, we are told in the midst of this world, the church is being kept safe. The dimensions of God's holy temple are measured. But notice that what is true for those within the temple is not true for those who are on the outside. Look with me at verse 2. He is then told, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. You'll remember that the Old Testament temple had a court of the Gentiles. And here, this imagery of an outer court of the Gentiles is used to represent those who may associate themselves with the church, but are not truly among God's people. It's describing what you and I might describe as, uh, we might call, a nominal Christians. It's saying, if you have not experienced the new birth in Jesus Christ, a new birth that is evidenced by genuine repentance over sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience to Jesus Christ as your Lord, no matter how much you profess adherence to the people of God, you are not one of His. But rather, you need to truly belong to the true church and there and there only are we kept safe by the living God. Those who are outside of the church in this outer court, we are told, are given over uh, to the nations. That is, they are, as it were, handed over to the world. They become the world's possession, adopting the world's values and the world's lifestyles. Again, don't we see that among nominal Christianity in our own day as they take on the value and agenda of the world? But rather, it is only within the church that, the, that God's uh, people are kept safe. And so here we're described that the nations are going to trample this holy city. That is, they are going to war against God's holy city, the church, for a period of uh, 42 months. And I'll describe that imagery. Uh, well, well, I'll describe that imagery right now for a second. We see that language of 42 months in verse 2. It's actually the same period of time as 1,260 days that we find in verse 3. It's the same amount of time as what is described elsewhere in Revelation as a time, uh, time and times and half a time. Okay, It's that period of three and a half years. Uh, and so it's different ways of describing the same amount of time. Well, what's, what, what's that time represent? Well, it's, it's again symbolic in its value. And it's referring to a, uh, uh, to a, it's as half of seven, which is the number of perfection. It's referring to a period of trial, which is limited in duration. And so it's referring to the period of time between Christ's first and second comings. But it's reminding us that this time is short. It's a period of time that is, it's a period of trial that is limited in duration, that won't go on forever. 
And so it's saying here, yes, the world will battle against the church, but its days are coming to an end. And it's reminding us that in the midst of this time period, you as the church are utterly safe and secure from all attacks. Oh, friends, what a blessed truth that is. Do you realize that as you seek to go out in this world as witnesses of Jesus Christ, that the Lord is with you? When he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, he means it. That he protects his people. That he keeps us secure in his his embrace. That he knows us intimately. And it's out of that security that we are able to live and to witness for him. Oh, friends, what a blessed thing it is to be safe and secure in the hands of Almighty God. The witnessing church is protected. But let's move on secondly now to the witnessing church empowered. And we find this in verses 3 through 6. The witnessing church empowered. Here we come to this phrase that I will grant authority, the Lord says, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. You'll notice again, it's the same time period as the 42 months. In other words, during this limited time, this brief time in the grand scheme of eternity between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ, while the world is battling against the church, what is the church of Christ called to do by the authority of God, but to witness to the gospel. We are called to prophesy here, and by the word prophesy, it's simply referring uh, to the act of proclaiming or witnessing to the world about Jesus Christ. And we're told here a number of things about this witness. First of all, we're told that this prophesying this witness is to take place while we are clothed in sackcloth. Well, what sackcloth represent? It represents humility and repentance. And it's reminding us that our message, dear friends, is a message of repentance. Luke 24, 47 and 48, where we are told by the Lord Jesus that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Christ's name to all nations. And you are witnesses of these things. What is the church's message? And hear me here, the church's message, unlike so much of what we hear in our day, is not about the goodness of man. It is not that you should simply believe in yourself or you should reach your potential. Dear friends, the message that we bring is this, is that we are creatures wonderfully made by God, but who are sinners who have rebelled against the living God. And we need to come to people and say that you are a far worse sinner than you ever could imagine, just as I am. But that Christ is a far greater Savior than you can imagine as well. Repent and believe upon Him. That is the message that the church is given to testify unto. So it's a message that is given in sackcloth. But you'll notice as well in verse 4 that these witnesses are called lampstands. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. 
Uh, the churches, you might recall, in Revelation 2 and 3 were uh, called lampstands there. And what is a lampstand but that which shines forth light? And the church is to shine forth with the light of Jesus Christ, pointing people to the Savior. We are to proclaim not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And these lampstands, you'll notice, are lit by the oil from two olive trees. Okay? Now, these olive trees represent certainly the Holy Spirit. Again, actually, the reference is from Zechariah again. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. We won't go through that passage in detail, but there it's uh, simply a vision is given of two olive trees. And then when asked, well, what are these, my Lord? The Lord, the answer is given, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so here we see that this shining witness that is pointing to Jesus Christ, that is preaching a message of repentance, is a witness that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. But then verses 5 and 6 go on to tell us that this witness clothed in the Holy Spirit, then comes with extraordinary power. An image is given here of fire pouring forth from the mouth of these witnesses and consuming their foes. And power being given to these witnesses to shut the sky so that no rain may fall. And power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as they desired. And these are references to the Old Testament. Uh, in the one case of Jeremiah, of him being given fire out of his mouth to consume uh, his foes. In another case, uh, that of Elijah. And in another case, that of, uh, of Moses and the ten plagues against Egypt. And this imagery is being used simply to say that when the church witnesses for Jesus Christ, there is power, extraordinary, supernatural, heaven-sent power in that witness. That gospel proclamation isn't just words. It's not just the sharing of a perspective or the sharing of, a, 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 of my opinion. But friends, wherever the gospel of our Lord and Master is proclaimed in truth, it comes with extraordinary power. Romans 1.16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? It is the power of God unto salvation. For all who believe. That friends, when the gospel is proclaimed, that gospel as it is preached is actually the very thing what the Lord uses to turn some from darkness to light, to bring them out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. And that same gospel message, when it is rejected, brings with it judgment and seals the condemnation of those who remain dead in their sin and transgression. Do you see the gospel is that which contains power? And so as we witness as a church, we are doing something of extraordinary importance. Power is being demonstrated, a power that is greater than the power of any military force in this world. It is greater than the power of any nuclear weapon. It is greater than the power of of Wall Street or of giant corporations. It is greater than the power of the enter entertainment industry. Friends, it is the very power of God that attends 
a true gospel witness. Do you remember how Paul spoke of uh, the gospel when it went into the city of Thessalonica? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. He says to them this, that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And dear friends, that is the kind of gospel that you and I, uh, that you and I preached, that you and I uh, proclaim, that wherever the word goes, dear friends, some are released from the grip of Satan's power and brought into the kingdom of God. Others are sealed in their unbelief to everlasting damnation. Friends, we need to have confidence in this gospel witness. And that's why we give ourselves to it. We proclaim the gospel because there is power in this gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so there we have the witnessing church empowered. But now thirdly, let's consider the witnessing church embattled. The witnessing church embattled. And we find this in verses 7 through 10 of our passage Because here we read that the world doesn't receive this gospel witness without response, but rather opposition rises up against it from the pit of hell itself. Uh, We are told there, verse 7, that when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Well, What is being described uh, here? Well, what is being described is, on the one hand, we might say, the war that the world always wages against the church and its opposition to the gospel. But it does seem that what's being described here is especially referring to a kind of heightened rebellion that will take place just prior to Christ's second coming. And I say that for a few reasons. On the one hand, it speaks here of this rebellion coming after their testimony is complete, after they have finished their testimony. And it speaks of this rebellion occurring for a period of three and a half days, not three and a half years as the other, but merely three and a half days. It is a very brief time. And you'll notice as well that this comes chronologically here in Revelation 11, just prior to the blowing of this seventh trumpet and the return of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And this is consistent with what we read in the rest of the New Testament, that prior to Christ's coming, just prior, there's going to be a a, a general rebellion or falling away. There's going to be a time when the man of lawlessness, Paul describes, or the Antichrist is going to uh, appear And so it seems that while this might refer as well to a kind of rebellion throughout the period uh, between Christ's two comings, especially in view here as a kind of final uh, rebellion against the Lord. And in verse verse 8, it is described, it says that their dead bodies will lie in the street, describing of the killing of Uh, this witness, will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically, and here it's called by three different names, Sodom and Egypt, and where their Lord was crucified. Now again, it's saying, again, not literally saying it's in any one of these three places, but these three represent what marks out 
uh, the city of man in its rebellion against God. Sodom represents humanity in its most uh, immoral and corrupt uh, condition. Egypt representing humanity oppressing God's people. Uh, and where the Lord was crucified, referring to Jerusalem and its unbelief, there is humanity in its uh, rejection of God's Messiah and his gospel. So it's saying that this is what will mark the world in its uh, rejection of Christ. And it's going to lash out against the church. It's going to uh, persecute the church. It, it here speaks of their dead bodies are going to be refused uh, a burial for three and a half days. Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And in Jewish society, uh, for a body to refuse to be buried was a sign of dishonor and shame. And it's here saying that such dishonor and shame and mockery and gloating is going to occur over the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to appear for a time that the church will is extinct. That it's going to appear that the world has won. That the church is a non-entity. And we're told that the world will celebrate over this supposed death of Christianity. Do we not see even in our own day such hints of uh, this kind of, uh, of celebration. There are places in the world today in which the church is considered a kind of non-entity, whether it be in a place like North Korea or in Saudi Arabia or in the secularism of Western Europe or increasingly in the United States in which the things of what the, of, of what the church of Jesus Christ does appears inconsequential in our nations, uh, in the halls of power of our nation. Dear friends, saying that this is going to mark this time in which it seems that the world has won over the church. That the church is going to appear extinct. And we can learn from this, friends, that there are going to be times, the Bible says, when it seems that the world has triumphed. When it seems that secularism has won. That ungodliness rules the day. There's going to, there, there are going to be days in which other religions gain more adherence than Christianity does. When blasphemy against the name of the living God is, uh, it now appears normal. In which immorality is called good. And those good things are called evil. Do we not have signs of such things happening even in our own days, dear friends? But we ought not to be surprised. We are told it is going to appear for a time that the world has triumphed over the church. And friends, the temptation for us as the church in such days is to compromise our witness. It's to move along with a society that appears to have moved along beyond Christianity. Right? We, we frequently hear the phrase, don't we? We don't want to be on the wrong side of history. 
which in the views of the world means that there's a certain kind of progression that is taking place, and often a progression away from Christianity and towards a kind of secularism. And, and the pressure is, you need to go along with this. Don't hold on to the Christianity. That's a mere vestige of the past. It's, it's going to go away, we're told. Get on board with what's popular now, with, with the spirit of this age. That's what we're told. Dear friends, what the book of Revelation tells us here is that this isn't the end of the story. And that the apparent victory of the world and the gloating of the world in its victory over Christianity is but for a short season only. And this moves us now on to our fourth and final point. We've seen the witnessing church embattled, and now fourth and finally, the witnessing church in triumph. The witnessing church in triumph. Beginning in verse 11, it actually, be, it actually now speaks in the past tense. We're wondering, why is this speaking in the past tense? Well, it speaks now in the past tense in order to further assure us that the things that are about to be spoken here are so absolutely certain, it is as, it is as if they have already taken place. And here we are told that after those three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies uh, watched them. And it's saying that this church, which seemed to be on the very verge of extinction, suddenly is going to rise up in a mighty way. And this has happened in, in small forms throughout history, has it not? Was it not the case that in the very early church that we read of in the book of Acts, after Stephen was stoned and James was killed and Peter was imprisoned, that it seemed that this Christian movement was going to be stamped out, but it wasn't. It rose. Or in the days of the Middle Ages... When superstition and idolatry abounded even within the visible, visible church of Christ, it seemed that the church was going to be extinct. But then what happened? The Reformation. Or in the 1700s, uh, religion, which had thrived in the Puritan period, then became once again at a low ebb. But there was a great awakening as well. And friends, this is the promise here. Well, Rick Phillips says that the world's victories over the church are temporary and empty because of God's resurrection power. And that which we have seen throughout the history of the church, where the church seems to be extinct and then rises up again by the power of God, is going to happen in an even more glorious way at that time, just before the coming of Jesus Christ. When the Antichrist rises in all of his power and might, and many, it seems, are drawn away to lies, and immorality abounds, friends, we're told at such a moment, by, as it were, Christ's resurrection power, the church is going to be raised up again. And ultimately, it is that the church is going to be raised up at the time of, of Jesus' return, when the saints in triumph are going to go and meet him in the air. And the bodies of those who died in Jesus Christ are going to be raised 
are going to be raised first and are going to meet with their Lord in the air. And it's going to be a time of extraordinary victory and triumph for the church. We're going to stand in glory. And we're told here in in this passage that uh, in verse 13 then, at that hour there is a great earthquake. This earthquake, which seems to be a a sign of of, of of the impending judgment of this world. That a tenth of the city is going to fall. 7,000 people killed in the earthquake. Again, it's symbolic numbers, but it means uh, uh, some uh, being killed at this impending time of, of judgment. The rest then, terrified, giving glory to God of heaven. I, I'm not sure if this is speaking here about them actually uh, of, of a large number being converted at this moment. Or if it's just simply in a Philippians 2, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. Kind of acknowledgement that there is a living God, that even those who continue in rebellion against him are going to see that the living God exists on that day. But the point is, is that the church is going to triumph and that you and I are going on that final day to stand in glory. And let me just say this to you, that as you and I stand in glory and triumph on that final day, that you and I will consider it our absolute highest privilege in the world that we ever got to witness and testify to the saving grace of God as it is found in Jesus Christ. And you and I need to labor right now, despite all of the disappointments and frustrations of this present world, we need to labor now to witness to this gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that this day of sure triumph is going to come. In our Sunday school class today, we considered the life of Henry Martin, that great missionary to Persia and to to India, who spent his life for the glory of Jesus Christ, who traveled and learned languages so that the the Bible might be translated into into a couple of different languages. Uh, uh, He gave himself. Dear friends, on that day of final glory, is is Henry Martin going to be at all disappointed that he gave his life in order to witness for Jesus Christ? And the answer is no, not at all. And same with you and with me on that final day. Will we be at all disappointed for any effort that we have made to stand for, to witness for the Lord Jesus? And the answer certainly is not, but we will wish that we would have done it all the more. And so can we not commit ourselves now? This is the timeline of history, friends. This is what is going on in our world. We we give witness to Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit. Yes, opposition is going to come, but triumph will occur in the end. Can we not believe that and be faithful to the gospel? Can we not tell our friends and our neighbors about the Lord Jesus Christ? Can we not... uh, commit to, or, or, or can we not help promote the, the publishing of gospel literature and of gospel tracts and the sending out of, of, of the Bible uh, on, on, uh, over the internet and over the radio? Can we not give money for the work of mission so that the gospel will be proclaimed in other countries? Can we not help support young men going through seminary to be trained up as gospel preachers? Can we not, uh, as it were, give ourselves for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ? Can we not be uh, willing to freely share the gospel with others? Oh, friends, can we not say, I want to follow this command of my Lord Jesus that I shall be his witness 
in Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. The church is called to be these two witnesses, serving Christ in this way. Might we commit ourselves to doing uh, just that? Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, how we thank you for this testimony of your word, O Lord. And amidst these days in which we live, that we have been given a task to be those who testify to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, holding out our Savior for needy sinners. And Lord, grant that, you and, or that, that we would be uh, ever faithful to the testimony that we have been given that we would not uh, compromise the gospel message at any point, that we would be ever found faithful to the truth of your word, and that we would have confidence, O Lord, that you will keep us even to the end, to that final day of triumph. O Lord, our God, help us to labor and to live in light of that final day, Help us to be faithful uh, testifiers uh, to this glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen.